We welcome you to the media ministries of the Gathering Church in the Countryside YMCA of Mainville. As we love the Lord and each other, we're trusting that God would use us to plant a church in every YMCA around the world. To this end, would you join us? We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and in community groups throughout the week. As you listen to this resource, our prayer is that your love for Jesus would grow deep and your love for others would be seen and heard. If you're new here, we just want to welcome you. My name is Mike, and we are in a great passage of Scripture today, aren't we? <laughs> we wanted to keep the kids in for that scripture reading so they could especially hear the part where he cuts off his head. <laughs> Parents, you can explain that later, okay? Got it? Um, hey, prior to uh, just diving into the Word, um, uh, some of us went down to Asbury uh, University and Seminary and just wanted to share uh, a little bit about that. Um, we left on Friday, and it was awesome. just want to give a great report that the Lord is doing some great work in um, his sons and daughters um, two hours south of here. We, um, we, what we witnessed was a people that was genuinely hungry for God. Full stop. Um, so it was genuine. It wasn't uh, manufactured or manipulated in any means. And so um, many uh, are calling this this time uh, down there a revival. And um, I don't know if you've heard of that term, or you, maybe you're new to the faith, and 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 maybe you don't have any context to that. And so just um, revivals are typically marked by three things. Um, Renewal is a, is a personal thing where you come to the Lord and he renews you. But revival is where um, a whole community, a whole people experience, um, in essence, an awakening. And, and it's marked by a hunger for God, a genuine desire for prayer. So it's a whole people wanting and yearning to pray more. And then three... Um, it's marked by holiness, a genuine, earnest desire to grow in their relationship with the Lord and to be holy. And so there's a, um, there's a quote about revival that says, uh, it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk. And so we will trust the Lord and, um, and look what he's doing and, and watch what he's doing from here on out as uh, those people and us as we're watching and yearning for him as well, um, pursue the Lord in hunger and, and grow in holiness. Amen? And so what we, what we saw there, um, um, revival is often said that it's not, a, um, it's not an abnormal thing. It's actually a restoring of what is to be normal. That people, his people, sons and daughters, are hungry for him. This is... Just one of the pictures that I, I took, uh, we couldn't even actually get into the main chapel because people from all over the country were coming. And so lines were hours long. That's the main chapel there. And um, we went into a different chapel and the Holy Spirit um, was there too. <laughs> so it was great. It was great. Um, so I think it would be just appropriate to, um, to just pray and ask the Lord that he would meet us through his word, by his spirit, and that he would, and this is a, a, in all genuineness, it, that he would meet you if you're not hungry for him this morning, which I've been there. The beautiful thing about the Christian faith is that you can ask God to grant you hunger for him, and he will help you, and he'll draw you uh, into himself. And so let's ask the Lord to do that this morning, shall we? So, Lord, we, uh, we thank you for what you're doing in Kentucky. We ask that you would um, take that and move it here to Ohio and spread it across this land, that your people would be hungry for you, 
and that they would seek you with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, that they would repent of things that do not please you, and that they would turn to you by faith and trust you with their life. Lord, may uh, this, this movement, may this people, may our church, Lord, be marked by a genuine desire for holiness, for you. Lord, we sang it this morning that we are satisfied by you. And so I pray that, that, Lord, you would satisfy the hungry this morning. Would you do that? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, shall we? Let's do it. When was the last time you read David and Goliath in its entirety from the Bible? I know a lot of parents out there, you've probably read the story a hundred times from different children's books, children's stories, but when was the last time you either had it read for you or you read it with your own eyes in its entirety? This is one of the most famous stories in the Bible, uh, like, like right under Jesus Christ being born, like Christmas, and right under Jesus being crucified and buried and risen again, uh, Easter. And so this, this is a fantastic story known by both Christians and non-Christians. I think the question to start us off with right off the bat is, what is the point of this story? Like, what's it here for? What's it doing? How does it function? What is the original writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, how has he arranged this material in such a way to send a message? What is this about? So, the next few moments, I'd like to attempt to, um, to find that out and to equip you to see it. And so let's start like this. I would like to make a significant theological and academic contribution to the church and the whole world in its entirety. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Got some wives looking at the husbands going, oh my word, what's about to happen? Here it is. Chapter 17 immediately follows chapter 16. Isn't that so great? I'll reframe it if you didn't catch that, okay? We got 16, and right after that comes 17. It's just, it's really beautiful. Uh, last week, thank you, thank you, thank you. Last week, didn't uh, Tim Allen do a great job presenting the Word of God to us? It was, it was wonderful. We saw David. We saw him chosen. We saw him anointed. We saw him equipped with the Spirit. It was, it was beautiful. And we saw this great phrase that you've got to remember, you've got to hold on to. That God, let's see if kids can remember it. God doesn't look at the what? Yes, all right, at the outward appearance. But God looks at the? Nice job, nice job at the heart. Good. And so what we're seeing here is that chapter 17 is an extension of that message. That's what he's doing. And what we're going to do is we're going to meet our cast. There's a lot of characters in this chapter. And we're going to see how each of them failed to see how God sees. Each of them succeeded in looking at the outward appearance. So they failed at looking at the heart. They failed to see what God sees except one. Except one. We're going to see how Israel viewed Goliath and how the writer presents Goliath in such a way as Israel looks at him, looks at his outward appearance, and flees because they're, they have great fear. We're going to see Saul's view of David. He's going to look at him and go, just a boy. We're, of course, going to see David and Goliath in the actual battle. And then we're going to see at the end, just like we read, how the story ends in this strange way where we've got two guys, Saul and Abner, and they fail to see. They still don't get it. They fail to see how God sees. And they go, whose kid is this? He said, nobody. What's he doing? 
And so the title today, if you're taking notes, is As God Sees. And the, the overall message or the argument of the text, um, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis because I think it's just perfect to capture what, uh, what is going to be said today. One time he said, I believe in God like I believe in the sun. Not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Let me say that again. I believe in God like I believe in the sun. Not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And that's how this text and this story is going to affect us today. That by seeing the Lord rightly, we're going to get to see everything else. So if you would... Follow along with me as the Spirit has laid it out in this text. And ask for fresh eyes in this as we learn. There's two massive tensions in this story. One is that God's name is being defamed. And then the other tension is the fact that the solution is this like small boy like small in stature, small in influence. He's a nobody. That's the solution to this massive problem. So there's these tensions. So let's get after it. Okay, so it starts off with a, an introduction based on like the geography of the land. Okay, you read it. You got the Philistines on one side of a hill. We've got this valley in between and we've got the army of Israel on the other. It's like this great war scene. And we are planted right in the middle of it. And we're able to see both behind the lines what Israel's thinking, and we're planted right dead center in the battlefield. And then we meet um, our first set of characters, uh, Israel, the army of Israel, and Goliath. Okay, So meet me in verse 4. Goliath is introduced. He's the champion. And here's... Here's how we get our first impressions of him. And I'm going to just summarize it in two words. This guy is huge, and he's wearing everything heavy. Okay? For some reason, that's how he's depicted. Okay? And so it says that he is six cubits and a span. Now, I don't know how savvy you are uh, with cubits these days. Um, and so let me help you out. That's nine feet, six inches. Um, some of you know this, but I office right back here when I was studying this. I was like, how am I going to help our people see this? I wear a size 12, which is pretty handy in terms of feet. And so I took my right shoe off and I lined it up right against this wall. And nine feet, six inches hits right in the middle of our screen right there. That's how big Goliath was. I also looked up in the Guinness Book of World Records who is the tallest person living today? And it's guy, this guy's name is Sultan something. Kosin from Turkey. Uh, he was born in 1982. And the guy is eight feet, one inches tall. One inch. That's pretty tall, isn't it? Yeah, eight feet tall. Goliath was a whole foot and a half taller than him. Okay? Goliath was a giant. Giants were a thing back then. Um, and Israel knew giants. Giants were a part of Israel's history of their opposition. When Israel um, escaped, when they exited out of Egypt, they, um, they got the law. They saw the land before them. Moses was leading them. And Moses said, there's the land that God promised to us. I need 12 guys. Come on, I need 12 spies to spy out the land. Ten of them came back and said, no way. There's giants in the land. We ain't going there. But two of them, two of them, Joshua and... All right, you guys know. Woo! Points for Bible trivia, the gathering. Caleb said, the Lord's given us this land. This, is, this land is flowing with milk and honey. Are you kidding me? Let's go. Let's follow the Lord in obedience. And the people said, no, we're going to trust our eyes. We're going to trust in what we see. And so God 
sent them wandering out in the desert until, until the generation uh, after 20 died off. He punished them because they trusted their eyes and they didn't see as God sees. And now they see another giant with their eyes and it's not a mistake. He, not, not for 40 years, but for 40 days now, he has been testing Israel. And God is going, are my people going to trust me again? Are they going to follow their eyes? Are they going to look at, at me? What are they going to do? It's a test. So he was, he was high. He was, he was also heavy, this Goliath. Okay, um, His protective armor and offensive weaponry was massively heavy. It says that his coat weighed about 126 pounds. So all you like CrossFit guys who are wearing weighted vests of 40 pounds, 60 pounds, uh, Goliath was wearing a 126-pound vest of armor. Uh, it says that his spear, it was about, the end of it was about 15 or 16 pounds. This guy is huge and he's heavy. Do you have a good picture of Goliath? Now, where are God's people? Mimi in verse 11. Let's read about it. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And so Goliath, he laid down the challenge. He said, hey, bring out a champion and whoever wins, the whole country has to become servants of the other country. If I win, Israel, you become our slaves. If you guys win, we will become your slaves. That's old ancient uh, strategy of, of warfare. We read about it in the Iliad with Achilles and Hector, right? Um, so this is not new stuff. And Israel, upon hearing that challenge, is left totally without hope and totally depressed. Side note, church, uh, if you're looking for someone to identify with right away in the story, it's Israel. Fearful, terrified, depressed. There any, is there anything in your life perhaps that you are seeing with your own eyes rather than how God sees? Maybe you're dismayed. Maybe you're terrified. And perhaps as you examine your own life and your own challenges, perhaps it is because you are looking with the lens of man and not the lens of God. And so immediately you would say, like, well, I don't want to do that. Like, Mike, how would I change my perspective on things? I want to see how God sees. And so I'll just tell you right away, the beautiful truth, this, this gospel link that happens in this passage is not the message of, hey, everything we read and study today, hey, go be like David. The gospel link is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a better David. It's the, it's the greatest truth in all the world. That you can look to Christ because you have him. Who knows Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ and I what? I no longer what? But who lives in me? But Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith. In the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the truth. This is what God does through his son Jesus Christ to those who believe. You don't have to be behind enemy lines. You don't have to hide anymore. You can face life confidently because you have Christ in you, living through you. Now, check out verse 12. This should be like a balm to your soul. 
This is how the original readers would have reacted, okay? Let me start it out. Two words. Now, David. Everyone sigh with me after I read it. Ready? Now, David. <sighs> Thank you. Okay. Let's wait and see. Because the narrative continues, okay? They introduce a new character. And we're going to see his brothers, especially one, view David as not as how God sees David, but they're going to see the external appearance. Before that, the writer wants us to see three things about David. Meet me in verse 14. Number one, that David is the youngest. So, okay, so that's not like the best or most like highly attributed. The oldest got the inheritance. The oldest led. The old. So David was the youngest. Number two, that he was humble. This guy David was humble. Look at the rest of verse 14. It says the three oldest followed Saul, 15. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Isn't that great? This guy David wasn't above uh, that kind of work cared for his parents. He cared for uh, the things on the farm. He was humble. And number three, David was a servant. Look at 17 with me. Now Jesse said to his son, David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. He, he, just, he served his brothers. He was, a, he was a servant. So he was the youngest and we could say that his character was commendable. And from this description, I know he's a celebrity in our minds, but just you got to read this with fresh eyes with me. From this description, you're not anticipating this great hero. You're not anticipating a celebrity. You're like, oh, like a little shepherd boy. That's, that's, that's nice. But you need to catch it early on that this is how God works. This is the kind of people that God likes to use. He chooses these kind of people, the lowly at heart, the ones who have depth of character, but aren't impressive externally. That's his pattern. That's what he does. He loves it. So the story continues. David, he sets out. He finds his brothers. He immediately asks, hey, how you doing? Right? And while he's talking to him, he hears the champion from Gath, Goliath, giving his usual uh, defiance, is what the word says. His usual defiance. And he sees, he looks around, and he sees all the army of Israel fleeing in terror. Okay? The men of Israel, they've been talking. The text says they, they have always been saying about the prize that the person gets. Whoever goes and fights Goliath and beats him, they get wealth, they get a wife, and they get no taxes. How would you like that? Pretty good. Pretty good prizes, huh? Wealth, a wife, and no taxes. Sweetheart, I would choose you above taxes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll pay taxes all day long. But meet me in 26, okay? Watch, watch how David responds to this situation, okay? Um, this is the first time we actually um, read David's words in the Bible. So this is significant, okay? Uh, of course, he's been talking, he's not a mute. He's been talking, but we see his words come out on the page for the first time. So it's got to be significant. Let's read it. Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So his first statement or question seems a little self-serving, right? Like, oh, sweet, I'll take a wife and I'll take some wealth and no taxes. That sounds pretty good, right? But his second statement, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That reveals what's going on in his heart. 
This is the first theological interpretation of the circumstances. Army on one side, army on the other, valley in the middle. Everyone's seen the outward appearance, and he sees it, David sees it, as a threat against God. It's the first time. Israelites, they didn't see it. Saul didn't see it. They saw it as a threat against themselves. But David sees it and speaks out. When Goliath disgraces God's people, he is disgracing God himself. Don't do that. <laughs> when you do that, when you speak poorly of God's people, you speak poorly and bring down the name and renown of God. Has anyone ever uh, talked bad about your mama? What do you do if someone talks bad about your mama? Right? You kind of bow up your chest. You say, don't you talk about my mama like that. Right? You say something. Why do we shrink back when someone speaks poorly of Christ and His church? When someone takes God's name and takes God's people and throws them in the mud, why do we just shrink back? I, I would say, honestly and pastorally, it might be because we're loving ourselves more than the Lord's glory. But David sees it clearly. His brothers don't, but David sees it rightly as God sees it. He has God in mind. Look at verse 28. Watch Eliab. Watch how he just denigrates David. He says, you know, you had a small influence, bro. What could you ever do for Israel? Ready? Let your eyes go to find, uh, find 28. When Eliab... David's oldest brother heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger and, and at him asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those, watch this, this is those few sheep in the wilderness. How mean is that, huh? Do you, do you hear his anger, his bitterness, his sarcasm? You also see it how the theme is continuing to develop, to, de to develop, that the writer is telling us, hey, this is the youngest guy. This is how everyone sees him, just lowly. He's small. He's young. He's got little or no influence at all, just a few sheep. Just like, what are you doing here? Catch this, church. This is how God works. This is whom He chooses. And so we must remember and cherish this fact. Although it goes countercultural and counter like to what our hearts want, that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That's what He does. He raises up the lowly and He puts down the proud. This is... Not only the theme of 1 Samuel, which we see it in, in Hannah's prayer right away. We see, let me read it for you. It says that not only by strength one prevails, but those who oppose the Lord will be broken. Watch, watch the opposites and the reversals take place. It's everything you wouldn't expect. The bows of the warriors, broken. But those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food. What? I wasn't expecting that. Well, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. Hannah sets it up right in the beginning of the book. Get ready for some reversals because this is how God works, not in the way you would think. It's the opposite. That prayer that Hannah prayed in chapter 2, is almost verbatim what Mary prays in the New Testament, the mother of Jesus, 
Yep, this is how God works. He raises up the humble, shames the proud, right? This is not just two prayers by two godly women. This is the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of the whole universe. What we would expect is He comes with a sword in His fist, right? But the Messiah comes to Bethlehem. <laughs> he comes in a manger. He's wrapped in what? Really? This Messiah, this, this carpenter. He's, he's, what good comes from? That's right, Nazareth. That's right. And then this Savior dies on a cross shamefully and humbly. Isaiah 53 prophesied about him. He has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we would ever desire him. Isn't that wild? This is talking about Jesus. This is not just Jesus. It's not just Hannah. It's not just Mary. It's the disciples. Jesus like chose 12 like ragamuffins, scumbag, tax collectors, sinners, uneducated, unworthy, unequipped people. Why? They're, they're, this was their like reaction in modern terms. I don't know. I just want to follow him. I just love him. I just, whatever he says, I'll just do that. That's the kind of people that God loves to choose. And this, my friends, I hope you're hearing this from me again. This is how God still works. But his brothers didn't see it, did they? Few sheep, few influence, young Well, let's see how Saul sees David, okay? I know you don't have high expectations of Saul. If you're visiting here, we've begun to see his decline. And so you're probably going, oh, I know he's not. I, I mean, I know the story, but, right? So Saul, he hears, he hears David talking and he goes, hey, come on in here. Come on in. Let me talk to you for a little bit. They describe the situation and, and David says to Saul, hey, don't lose heart. I'll fight him. And Saul looks at his outward appearance. Meet me in 33 now. And he says, you are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he, external appearance, has been a warrior from his youth. <laughs> so, I mean, I know you weren't expecting much out of him, but there it is. Saul doesn't look at the heart either looks at the outward appearance. But we learn something key here. Anyone hungry to walk with God this morning? You want to, are you zealous to know Him and grow in Him? Then let's see how David responds to this challenge. Okay, David remembers the past. Look at verse 34. So if you want to walk with God... If you want to trust Him with, with your battles and challenges and trials, and if you want to press on and have perseverance in this life, friends, like beloved, remember the past. Watch how David remembers the past. And then I'm going to tell you how he interprets the past. He says, 37, the Lord, uh, forgive me, I skipped the part. Verse 34, let me summarize it. Hey, I was just a shepherd. One time this bear came along and I killed it. And then there was this lion. I killed him. So I think I can take, I, I, I'm going to take him. Okay. 37, he interprets it. This lowly shepherd boy says, it wasn't my hunting skills. It wasn't my great strength. Look at the words. He's going to remember and ascribe all glory and honor and faithfulness to the Lord. The Lord, are you there with me? Who rescued me <laughs> from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistines. Right there. You see that? His lens of walking with God, he's going to remember his faithfulness. 
and interpret the past by God was faithful and he rescued me. So friends, if you want to walk with the Lord today, okay, take whatever trial you're going through, whatever challenge it is, and everyone's got one, okay? I don't have to ask for a show of hands. God, through His Word, is telling us, go back. Look back and identify that trial and see how God has been faithful and how He's carried you and how He is carrying you, how He's rescuing you. Sometimes it might not feel like it all the time. You might be right in the middle of it. But what He has done in the past is a model of what He can do and will do in the future. In our groups this week, and over lunch, share, talk about your trials, and say, you know what? That's where God met me. And He'll do it for you too. And He'll fight for you there. He provides a fighter. He provides a champion in the past. And he, you have a champion. He'll continue to do it. Shall we get to the battle scene? Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Let's do it. Fresh eyes. You promised. Here we go. Fresh eyes. All right. Look at how so much ink is spilled on the speeches in this battle. It's like all words. Are you kidding me? You might think I'm a little nerdy, but I counted the number of words versus the, the words of the actual battle. They're all inspired, but there are 63 words spoken in this battle scene and 36 words actually describing the battle. Isn't that fascinating? What does that tell us? That's not math. It's telling that something is happening in these speeches that are extremely theological, and we need to know what he's talking about, okay? So fresh eyes. Let's look at, um, at the comments, okay, at the speeches, Let's look at Goliath first. What do you think? You can anticipate it. I know you can. What do you think Goliath's going to say based off the thread, the theme of this story, how it's laid out? Goliath is going to look what? That's right. He's going to look at it. Let's see it. Just don't believe me. Look at 42. He looked David over. So he eyed him up. He saw that he was little more than a boy. Are you catching it yet? How the writer's laying out this? And what do you think David said? He's going to declare that Yahweh saves. Not by instruments of power. Not by great might. But He saves through the weaknesses of His servants. That's what he's going to declare to us today. And he's going to do it with a heart of missions so that the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. Okay? So let's read it. Let's read David's speech, verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. You see that mission's heart? All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword. This is the theme, this is the message. It's not by spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. It's beautiful. I hope you catch this theme today that God uses your inadequacy. He has enough strength. He is able. Your inadequacy actually qualifies you to be used by God. If you're saying, I got this, I got this, I can do this, not qualified. Boast in your weakness. Boast in your lack of strength and your lack of ability because God's ability is magnified here. Trust His Word. Church, trust it this morning. It's beautiful. There's this story of this Christian woman 
who, because of her profession of faith, she was jailed and scheduled to be uh, executed the next day. She was also pregnant. The night before her execution, because of the stress and because of the timing, of course she cries out and she gives birth. The jailer um, hears her cry out and chooses to ridicule her and says something along the lines of, you cry out with that? What are you going to do tomorrow when you suffer immense pain unto death? Listen to her reply. Today I suffer what is ordinary. Tomorrow I am to suffer what is more than ordinary and shall hope for more than ordinary assistance. This woman knew her weakness. She knew that the trial of tomorrow was going to be so difficult unto death. And so because she knew her weakness, she asked for not ordinary, but, but extraordinary assistance. You can do that too. If you acknowledge your weak. Right? Believer, you have more than ordinary assistance. Watch the story progress and we'll land the plane. Ready? Believer, verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, I love this part for some reason, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Don't you love that? Reaching into his bag, and taking out a stone, which these stones probably ranged from anywhere from two to three inches in diameter, and an accomplished warrior could whip this sling and send a stone anywhere from 100 to 150 miles an hour. Okay, The text says, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. <laughs> and so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him and, and took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. That day, God validated his name. He was adequate to accomplish this. Yet he used a small shepherd boy to carry it out. And watch this. Because of David's obedience and God's ability, that actually emboldened the Israelites. When the head got cut off, they were like, Yes! And they came out of their battle lines and charged and chased down the Philistines. And they plundered their camps afterwards. I mean, this is a beautiful scene. And this is the scene that, that, that should encourage and embolden us. Jesus Christ, our great champion, death on the cross, rose again, should embolden Christians to go out on the battlefield. It's, it, it's the truth. Why do we shrink back? Like this, this is a declaration to us. We should not hide. Those who fix their eyes on Jesus, they can remember that God has ultimately won the battle and they can have courage. Last scene, often skipped in terms of a storyline. We just hit the climax. Why in the world end like this? And I hope you're seeing it today. Here's the conversation. Saul is going, huh, huh. Who's that? Abner, who is that? I don't know. Bring him here. Okay. I bring him here. Who are you? <laughs> Whose son are you? And the story ends like this. My dad's Jesse. That's it. He's from Bethlehem. 
Why in the world would you end like you've got to like end with the head cut it off, right? Come on. And then the credits come up. But what is the word telling us this morning? This is the beauty about exposition. It's saying David was a nobody. He's telling us again. He was a nobody. And God was everything. And God loves to use nobodies to accomplish his will. That's what he does. He gets all the glory. Do you like that truth? There's no celebrities here. It's just Jesus. So many of you, you've been hearing about the story of the revival happening at Asbury Seminary. Have you ever heard of who Francis Asbury was? So um, this guy's from England. Okay. He, um, it, it, obviously, the, the, the college and the seminary is named after him. And he was commissioned to be a missionary in America as a circuit rider. Circuit riders mean that they were given a horse, they were given the gospel, and, and they said, go to all the homes, all the homesteads, all the log cabins in America, because one soul is worth all the miles you could ever ride. And so Asbury, Francis Asbury, said, I'll do it. I'll do it. Um, he, what, he, he sets the record. Wesley rode 210,000 miles on horseback. Can you imagine him becoming a church like this, right? Asbury, right? 240,000 miles for the gospel. For the gospel. In, in all sorts of conditions, all sorts of weather. This guy, what we know now is that he was probably anemic. But what he did, this shows you the grit of, the, of how the gospel emboldens people. He, he, was, he felt sick all the time. And he heard that if you boil a bunch of water and pour it over a hundred or so nails and drink it, it'll make you feel better. And so all Asbury drank nail juice to feel better so that the gospel would go out. The iron would replenish him, right? Now we just take supplements. We're a bunch of wimps, right? But this guy drank nail juice. He didn't have money. And he, when he came to a home, uh, they would host him. He didn't have an address. It is known that if you wrote... Uh, Francis Asbury on an envelope, it would somehow get to him. How about that? He was just so well-known, so well-respected in America, so well-revered that this would get to him. What I want you to catch is that in the beginning of his ministry, when he was 25 years old, still in England, um, the church said, hey, there's this land over here. There's people there. They need the Lord. Who's going to go? And Francis goes, I'll do it. The papers written about him, the letters exchanged, this is what I want you to catch, are incredible. Um, they wrote, this man is not a good preacher. This man can't lace three words together without stumbling over his words. He doesn't really know his Bible. He's not accomplished. There's nothing real, real like awesome to say about his skills. But his character is commendable. This guy has a depth of character. I, th I think it's okay if he goes. I think it's okay. You know what else he said about, they said about him in these letters? He's commendable. He's also expendable. They, in the letters, we don't need him. Let's send him. That's me. That's all of us. We are growing in character, in Christ-like character, and we are expendable. How would you like that on your resume, right? That's us. That's, uh, Lord, like make us to have that heart attitude so that we can say, just use me and you get all the glory. That's it. That's the story. God uses the weak to shame the strong. He did it here. He'll do it in your life. If you trust Him and see as God sees. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give us just a time of silence.
I know you've heard a lot this morning. There's been a lot of truth, a lot of story. Would you ask the Lord to impress on his heart, on your heart, one thing? So, Father, we come to you, and we're going to be silent before you. We're going to trust you now. Would you reveal to your people one thing? No music, no words, just your spirit now. We're quiet before you. Father, by faith, we thank you for how you work by using our weaknesses to magnify your glory. Would you embolden your followers today? Help us to see rightly. We respond to you.